0: Well, as, as as I come again, what I want to look at today is Luke chapter sixteen, and so we'll read together Luke Luke sixteen in the first thirteen verses, a parable of Jesus, <clears throat> page one o five o. If you've got a Bible like like this. into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first how much do you owe my master? Eight hundred gallons of oil of olive oil, he replied. The master told him, Take your bill, sit down and make it four hundred. Then he asked the second and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, Take your bill and make it eight hundred. The master commended the dishonest steward because he had acted shrewdly, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So, if you have been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you? If you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you? Again, and if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other, you cannot serve both God and money. Amen. Well, good morning again, folks. Nice to stand before you um, and nice to share the service with Ross uh, this morning. The last couple of times I've been here, Ross hasn't been, and so it's nice to. Share, share the service with you. Um, just want to look at these verses in Luke chapter 16. It's a fairly hard parable of Jesus, and so I think the lessons are fairly straightforward once we get into it, but um, it's along the line of prudence. Prudence means to be wise in practical affairs, um, particularly with a view to the future. Prudential um, is a financial services group that advertised quite a lot in the 1990s, I think, and they are still around doing what they do, um, whereby their strapline is to help people remove uncertainty from life's big events, providing our customers with the freedom to face the future with greater confidence. And so, this this idea of doing something today that will provide for our future, Um, and often when we think in a worldly sense, that is providing for family, providing for retirement, providing for something um, earthly, something that is still to come, but it, but it's, but it, it usually doesn't take account of, of, a, of a greater reality and an eternity to come and thinks more about what we would do for our own future. But what this parable, the main thrust of this parable that we're, that we're looking at is not so much to provide for our retirement. In fact, it probably speaks against um, uh, just loading up things for our retirement, but it, it uh, en- encourages us to, to use whatever window of opportunity we have while we're here on the planet to provide not for our later years, but to provide for, for an eternity to come, to provide for an age to come. Um, it's, it's about a rich man and a steward, a fairly common. Situation in the Middle East where you have an absentee landlord, and he has an estate manager. And uh, absentee landlord, because he's got a manager, he doesn't want to be to be handling the day-to-day running of the farm or of the estate, and so he has handed it over to this fella. But this fella needs to be honest in order to do his job well, and he hasn't been. Somebody has squealed on him to the master. It seems that that the matter is. That there's sufficient evidence that it's, that it's already settled, that the fellow's going to lose his job as the manager. Um, but he has a little window of opportunity before he hands over the books, as would be typical. You would have just a day or two to square things up before you brought them to the boss and, and uh, went your separate ways. And, and he knows that he's going to be out of work. He recognizes that he's been working at management level. And so, he, he, he doesn't want, or he, he thinks he wouldn't even be able uh, to go back to be a laborer. Um, and so, he comes up with a plan to make friends of his master's clients, so that they might take him onto their staff, perhaps, or, the, or, the, or that so that he would have friends to, to help him out when he's out of work. Calls around with his master's debtors. They, ex- they probably exchange some pleasant conversation, and then he, he makes them a fantastic offer. And he says, bring in your bill. One guy has, has, um, has a bill for a significant amount of oil, and he says, cut that in half. I can, I, 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 I can just rewrite that, and you can get half. Um, and somebody else has um, got a bill for a lot of wheat, and uh, he says to him, we can, we, we can cut that down by a certain percentage. And so, the debtors are happy. The debtors are warm to the manager and maybe even are in his debt in some way. And, um, and, what, and for whatever reason, this is a, a, it's, it's somewhat strange, but for whatever reason, when he reports back to the manager, or sorry, when he reports back to his master, his master congratulates the manager for this bit of thrifty business that he's been up to. Um, why? Well, some would say that the discounted sum could have been a write-up, some would say that it was an extra slice that the manager had put in for himself, maybe, and so he was doing himself out. Was it just a good deal to get the books sorted out and to get the business settled? Was it just a pat on the back for being canny from, from the, the uh, owner of the estate? I, 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 I don't think we know the answer to it, and I don't think it really matters But there are three lessons, I think, that we can bring from this. And that is, the first is a lesson from the good example of the parable, that we might act wisely today to receive a benefit later on. second thing that I think that we can learn from it is um, that we need to be careful with how we use our earthly resources, because how things are to be attributed in an age to come will have some relevance to how we manage our affairs now. And the third is a more general gospel lesson, that we will serve whoever is our master. This passage finishes off by this idea that you can't serve God or the bank. You'll serve one or the other. And so, there's something of a diagnostic in this passage that just reminds us that whatever we we serve um, will show us a little bit of what's in our heart. So, the first of these then, this man had a short window of opportunity to do something that would help him out later on. People of this world think ahead. It's 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 a story taken from secular society where people network. People scratch each other's back. People do things today that will give them a return later on. Uh, they take a, uh, maybe a, a, some sort of lost leader in business to to get clients later on, or to uh, to put clients in their debt. People will um, at a season when when we're um, when when the uh, sort of rugby scene is popular and and uh, busy with the Six Nations. People will put tickets. For their clients or will uh, pay for tickets for their clients to go to Murrayfield for the day and this sort of thing, whereby we do something today to reap a benefit later on. Jesus is not affirming this guy's behavior, I don't think. He's just saying that we could learn something from a harder nosed approach to forward planning. Jesus' main point is clear. Use worldly wealth. Use your cash to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. It's a a strange thing for us to get our head around, but when we get to the core of it, it's it's fairly straightforward. Worldly wealth is described as unrighteous wealth, perhaps because there's often shady dealings around money. There's often some sort of scandal going down where money is involved— And so so we would use money and possessions to gain friends. Who are these friends? Well, Jesus is speaking to, He is speaking to people of the light. It's described in the passage as people of the light. And so friends for people of the light will be other people of the light. And so He says, speaking to these disciples, these these people of the light, use your money to reach people. Use your money to win people. Use your money for the gospel. Use your money for the kingdom. So that when it's gone, what, what does that mean? Well, I think we've, I think most of us will, will understand that uh, worldly wealth is earthbound. There should be a little best before date on every banknote that tells us best before death. Cash stays here, as we were saying to the children. It won't be accepted in uh, heaven. Um, Take the example or the illustration of uh, playing Monopoly. You, You could be rich on Monopoly money while the game's on, but whenever you put it all back into the box and you close the box, you're just the same as you were before the game started. And so, worldly wealth will expire, but in a sense, we can send it ahead of ourselves. In a sense, we we can use what we have here to make an investment in eternity. But as I said to the children, there's only one thing that gets through the gateway into eternity, and that's people. And so, somehow, if we're going to use whatever we've been blessed with here to make an eternal investment, we'll have to Uh, exchange the currency for people, because people are the only thing that can get through. Simple message of the parable, the main thrust of the parable. Origin, a a, a third-century Christian leader spoke of Christians as money changers who take the capital of earth and change it into the capital of heaven. See this kind of attitude for money. Even if, as, as we assess just how Jesus lived his life, he Jesus never wept for money. Never seemed to be in any way bothered about the fact that he didn't seem to have an awful lot of earthly riches. But he wept for people. He understood what true currency was. He he understood things of eternal value. He understood what would still be around in a thousand years' time. And he understood what was earthbound. We would invest in people, because only people make it through to the age to come. Jesus is speaking to His disciples on the journey to Jerusalem, preparing them for when He's not around, how they should use whatever they've been blessed with. Luke is writing, not to the poor Jews of Palestine, it would seem I mean, in terms of Luke's gospel, what what was its destination audience, Not, not to the poor Jews of Palestine, but to the more affluent Gentile audience of the Mediterranean basin. And he mentions this teaching. In this window of opportunity, in the window of opportunity of their lives, of our lives, how should we invest? Well, it's fairly simple. Put your money into people because people make it through. People spend so much time investing to reap a return in the second half of their lives. We, spend so, we, we uh, scurry around so much in the first half of our lives to try and provide for the second half of our lives in pensions and property and investment. But there are 36,000 unreached river communities in the Amazon of Brazil 36,000 groups uh, of—local groups of people living in in uh, in the Amazon of Brazil who have never heard of an eternity, who have never heard of Jesus and how to get there. What an investment for our money to put it in that direction. How many people in the central belt of Scotland, how many people out and around Scotland in the rural outlying areas where we focus on in faith mission, how many people in Airdrie, where you folks focus on, how many people still need to hear that there is an eternity? How many people still need to hear that there's only one way to get to that eternity? How many people live their lives in our secular, materialistic world with the mindset that this is for real? when there's a greater reality that they have known nothing about. In a sense, it's a no-brainer when you get the facts before you. How can we best invest what we've got, not to provide for the second half of our lives, but to provide for what John Newton described as 10,000 times 10,000 years? Invest in people. Second thing from the parable, and I'll spend less time as I go through these points. Um, but we're stewards on probation, verses ten to twelve. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have been trustworthy in handling worldly, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? make some sort of a contrast between what we have here as Plato, as Monopoly money, and true riches, something more real in the future that we could be entrusted with. It's the theme of stewardship. But in contrast to the steward of the parable. so the first one, the the, uh, first point and the first emphasis was was to… celebrate what the what the what the uh, what the steward in, in, in the parable did to invest for the future but 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 the second point is a is a contrast to the steward in the parable and in contrast to him um he wasted his master's possessions but the lesson would be that that we would use well our master's possessions he was a rascal didn't use them well. And the point is that money is a kind of a probationary material. It's the kind of thing that we're entrusted with while we earn our stripes, so to speak. The kind of thing whereby um, if you had a 17-year-old son who was looking for the keys of your BMW, you probably wouldn't give them to him. But you'd find some old diesel car that… wasn't too comfortable in the outside lane of the motorway, and you'd give him the keys of that just to, as a kind of a probationary exercise to see how he got on when he was entrusted with the vehicle. Same idea, your first day at work in the office, you're not going to be producing material for the best client. You're going to be entrusted with something a little bit less important for a day or two to see how you get on. And so money is given to us as a kind of Play-Doh See what we'll do with it. See how we'll use it. God has placed us here. He has given us this stuff. Some of us have been given more than others. One, com- one commentator suggested that's why it's called unrighteous, because it's never fairly distributed. Um, but because we live in the West, we have a lot. This steward wasted what he was entrusted with, Maybe he neglected it. Maybe he overspent. We're stewards of what we've been given and only what we've been given. That means if you haven't been given much, you're only responsible for what you've got. Don't, don't beat yourself up thinking, if I, only I had more, I could use it better. No, you've only, been re- you've only been entrusted with what you've got. Some of us maybe don't have an awful lot of money at all, and maybe we, d- we don't have much expendable income. But some people in that position, I've grown up with my grandmother and grandfather, used their home. They didn't have an awful lot of cash, but they used their home for gospel work. Um, As we're faithful with the resource of money entrusted to us by the Lord here, so we will be entrusted in due measure with the greater currency of the age to come. N.T. Wright says this, true riches which await us in the life to come, what what, what they are we can hardly guess, but there are true riches which really belong to us, which will really belong to us in a way that money doesn't in a more permanent sense if we learn faithfulness here and now. First thing, we would use the window of opportunity to invest for the future to, to follow the example of this crude parable. In contrast to the parable, we would be careful with what we've got now because how things are apportioned in an age to come will depend on it. And the third thing is... Um, that we will serve our Master. If you were to consider your heart like a compass, it used to be set to sin in opposition to God and His kingdom, self-interested, basically. But in what we call conversion, the compass of our hearts has been reorientated towards God. And there's no better way to discover where the compass of your heart is set than to ask yourself the question, how do you treat money compared with God? Under the old master, we're out for all we can get. It's me.com. It's my kingdom. It's I deserve, I want, I need but under the new lordship of Christ where the compass has been reset. You see it so clearly in the life of that little man Zacchaeus in Luke 19, whereby he, 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 he at once was grabbing for all he could get for himself. And when Jesus came to visit in his house, and when Jesus wonderfully transformed his heart, his, 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 his hands were changed from being tight-fisted to being open-handed blessing and helping and prepared to give back four times the amount. Please ask yourself, please ask yourself, as I talk about money and about investing in people for God's kingdom, please ask yourself, what is my heart reaction to this? If your reaction is, why on earth would I want to do that, preacher? Or you've got to be joking. Or you might say, Well, I can maybe spare you a fiver. If that's your reaction, be concerned. Maybe you've missed the point of why we're here. Maybe you've believed the lie of a secular, materialistic society that this world is the real world. But if If your reaction is, well, I just wish I had more to give, take heart that the Lord has already performed a miracle in your heart. You can't serve two masters, Jesus says. You'll either love the one and hate the other, or vice versa. If the compass of the Christian's heart has been reset towards God, where your treasure is there, your heart will be. The idea of, the, of, you know, Origins' idea of Christians as money changers will excite you. Not a hundred percent because we are flesh and spirit, but there will be a base level, a conquering level of excitement in serving the, the uh, King of Kings, letting go of me.com and serving the King of Kings and His Kingdom. So, if I had a hundred million, I could buy Paul Pogba. Or I could support 285 couples of gospel workers in Scotland for ten years. If I had a hundred million, I could send out I could spend it on one footballer, or I could send out 285 couples to gospel work in Scotland for ten years. What would you give it to? Pastor Malcolm Duncan of Gold Hill Baptist Church in Buckinghamshire, he and his wife decided that they would cap their income at a certain level And thereafter, it would all go to kingdom work. Finds himself in a very illustrious position. He's a pastor probably with a lot of money that he could have. He says, I've capped my income at a certain level, and the rest goes to the kingdom. No matter what comes in, that's all I take. C.S. Lewis lived on 10% of his income and gave the rest away. John Wesley said, earn all you can, give all you can, save all you can. We're stewards on probation, and we will, we will serve our Master. But don't miss, don't miss the main point of the parable. The main point is this, use worldly wealth to gain eternal friends. Use what you've got now to make friends that will welcome you into eternal dwellings. It's a glorious, glorious concept. It begins to redeem the value of money. Thank you.